to just take a quick second to let everybody know where we're at. Just keep your hands up. You don't have a study guide. We got plenty to make their way back to you. But we as a church, uh, I know we've been moving around a lot the past few weeks, but we're here now. Uh, Lord willing, this is where we'll be for the next season. Uh, but what we've been doing as a local church is we have been walking through the Gospel of Mark together on Sunday mornings. Okay, So we have made our way in the Gospel of Mark to Mark chapter 6 to a story about Jesus feeding the multitudes today. And we're about to read that together in a second. But I want to remind you of something that we're committed to as a church. Uh, this is called, a lot of people call this expositional preaching. Okay, And what this simply means, this is not a, you know, a high and lofty word. What this simply means is that when we teach the Word of God, the goal is to expose the Word of God. Not the thoughts of man, but the words of God. So I want to tell you how this works. Look around you in this room. There's about 120 people, 130 people maybe even in this room. And you begin to think in your mind, uh, how many needs are in this room right now in this moment? How many needs? How many? Th- just, just think about this. Secret sins, marital problems, uh, physical sickness, uh, unbelievable needs that you have no idea about. And then imagine okay, that we're gathered together in Jesus' name and your charge is to give God's people something helpful, something edifying. And the unbelievably freeing thing about expositional preaching is that man was never intended to carry the load of the people of God. Okay? It was never God's intention that somebody would stand in front of His people and exercise the gift of creativity. And in their own wisdom, in their own flesh, they think through, let me think of five points that I could share, throw a verse at the end, and be really helpful to everybody in this room. That's never the way that it was intended to happen. God's Word in context is profitable. It makes us complete for every good work. That's 2 Timothy 3.16 and then 17. And then what does he say two verses later? 2 Timothy 4.2. If it's God's Word and it's profitable, he says 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the Word, not the ideas of man, but the words of God. And so we can come to this time full of faith in Jesus. This is not a time for a man to exercise his giftedness or his creativity. This is a time for God's people to hear his word, to hear the words of God. And God can bless this time and he can meet the needs of every single person in this room because his word is powerful. His word is full of power. And so I just say that to encourage you. We're committed to this. We are all in on this. We are not meant to carry that load. We're not creative enough. And honestly, it's a, it's, it is unbelievable pride to think that someone in their own strength could feed God's sheep. It's unbelievable pride. So we're about to read this passage together. And I want you to prepare to read Mark chapter 6, verse 30 through 44. And I want you to prepare to be addressed by the living God. Personally addressed by the living God Himself. Let's read this together. Verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told Him all that they had done and taught. And He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. 
And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is late. Send them away into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love You and we're gathered together in Your name. And we just pray this corporately, Lord. We desire You to speak to us, Lord. We want to know You more. We want to know You rightly. We want to know You as You've revealed Yourself in Your Word. We want to think right thoughts of You, Jesus, and we want to feel right things about You. And in these next few moments, we just pray, Lord, that You would open our eyes to Your Word. We pray, Lord, that You would flood this place with the work of the Holy Spirit, that You would exalt Christ among us. Drive Your Word into our souls, Lord. Make it effective. As we walk out of here today, Lord, help us to love You more. God, we pray that Your Word would do everything that it's meant to do. Convict, bind up, stir up, comfort. God, come be the living God in our midst and speak to us from Your Word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this story... Jesus feeds the 5,000. This story is about bread. okay? But this story is more than about physical bread. And here's what I mean. The Bible often uses food as imagery. And this story is no different. okay? This bread is intended to point to something. okay? And let me just let you in on a secret. The entire reason that God created bread was so that Jesus Christ could use it as an illustration for Himself. Let me tell you what I mean. You think, how many times in your life have you crunched down on a piece of bread? A lot. A lot. Everybody in this room has crunched down on a piece of bread a lot. And every single time you did that, you crunched down, you swallowed, and it hit your stomach, God intended to communicate a message about Jesus Christ to you. Colossians 1.16 is a reminder for us, nothing exists for itself. Nothing in all creation exists for itself. Everything that has been created has been created by Jesus and for Jesus. Colossians 1.16. Food is no different. The entire reason that food exists, think about this, multiple times every day of your life you eat food. The entire reason that exists is to teach you what it means to be satisfied in Jesus. He's the true food. He's the true bread. He's true nourishment. This is the point of this passage. If you don't know that the entire reason for food is to make you satisfied in Christ, then you are probably swimming in idolatry. Okay? You're missing all these types and shadows in creation that are meant to make you cast your gaze upon the Savior, to treasure Christ in all things. So I charge you this morning that you would open your eyes and see how Jesus is revealed in this text. He is revealed as the bread of life, the living bread that came down from heaven. 
So, this is a great miracle of Jesus. I want to say that again. This is a great miracle of Jesus. Consider this. This miracle is the only miracle besides the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is repeated in all four Gospels. That's weighty, right? Side by side with the resurrection, repeated in all four Gospels, the only one. Now that adds a lot of weight to what we're about to dig into. So why? Why do all four Gospel writers, why do they record this story in their Gospel? Why? It's because this story is pregnant with meaning. This story is slammed full of truths about Jesus. This story communicates an essential message about Christ. So you have it in every single one, in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, in John. In fact, in John 6, this miracle is referred to as a sign. And that's really interesting, right? Because the whole point of a sign is to point to something else beside itself. There's a deeper truth. There's a deeper reality. It's a sign. So this story is full of meaning and it it demands our attention. So I want to just charge you with that. Ask the Spirit of God to open your eyes this morning and show you Jesus from this text, from His Word. So we're going to unpack this story verse by verse. We're going to start in verse 30. And I just want to ask the Holy Spirit of God to drive His Word into your heart this morning. Verse 30 says this. Verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So, let me get you oriented in the Gospel of Mark, in case you hadn't been here. This text comes right behind Jesus sending out the twelve on their first mission. And they get back, and then we read verse 30, and they return to Jesus after their mission, and they begin to tell Jesus what happened. And we know that they had a lot to tell Jesus about, because earlier in Mark 6, in verses 12 through 13, we read this. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick. You see that? They would have had a lot to talk about to Jesus. So they come back and they're having this sweet time with Jesus Christ. Okay, Imagine the excitement as they shared story after story of ministry in His name as they go to village after village and preach the gospel and do the works that He had commanded them to do. And imagine the unity that they experienced because Jesus gave them a warning that they would be rejected in some villages. Just imagine the unity as brother after brother shared stories of, yeah, I was rejected too, I was rejected too. This is a powerful time with Jesus. And this was like a debriefing time for the twelve after their mission. And there's there's a real small principle for us here, and I'll hit it quick and move on. We should take our labor to the Lord in prayer. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He writes, We should take all of our words and works to the head of the church. We should ask His counsel. We should ask His guidance. We should ask His correction. And we should ask His blessing. We should take our labor to the Lord in prayer. G. Campbell Morgan writes, We would be better off if we talk far less of our labor for Christ to men and far more of our labor for Christ to the Lord Himself. Verse 31 and 32. And He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. So think about this. What is the first thing that Jesus does after they come back and they unpack this powerful mission? Okay, The first thing that Jesus, you would think that, you might think that Jesus would say, The harvest is plentiful. The labors are few. Get back out there. But He doesn't. Jesus does not say that. 
Maybe some of you think like that, but Jesus doesn't. He commands and He calls the twelve into a season of rest. So you might say, what? I thought we were on a hardcore mission and that we only rest when we're dead. Not according to Jesus. Jesus commands the twelve to rest. Even in the middle of a plentiful harvest with few laborers. There's the Word of God. Okay, Let that hit you if it needs to. This is an important, important principle for us. We are not God. We're not God. We don't have unlimited resources God does. We have needs as created beings. And these, this was a season of rest that was needed. And Jesus called them into it, but more than that, He commands them to rest. Okay? It would have been a sin for one of the twelve to look at Jesus and say, you know what, I think I'm good, I'm going to head back out. He commands the twelve into rest. So being addicted to labor for Jesus might make you hardcore before men, but Jesus knows better. Listen to this quote from Danny Aiken. It is not spiritual to be a workaholic. That man is the president of Southeastern Seminary. This is referred to as the Great Commission Seminary for the amount of laborers that they send out into the harvest. And that man is no lazy hippie. This man even says, it is not spiritual to be a workaholic. So people who ignore this principle of rest In the short run, they are ripe for spiritual pride. In the long run, they're ripe for a burnout in the mission of Jesus. So we are in a marathon, not a sprint. Jesus reminds us of this in this text. And the twelve needed refreshment for their souls. So in verse 32, he says, They went into a desolate place by themselves. The shepherd provides rest for his sheep. Verse 33 says this, Now many saw them going, and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. I want you to notice that in verse 33, three times the word them is used. Now the reason that's surprising is because you would think it would say he. okay? But it says that they recognized them, that's the twelve. So the twelve are sent out by Jesus on this mission. This mission is unbelievably successful. And the twelve are becoming famous enough that the crowd is now recognizing the twelve. They recognized these men. Now Luke's gospel, remember I told you, all four gospels tell this story. And you get a few details in in each one that aren't in another. So in Luke's gospel, we we find out that these twelve with Jesus were heading to a place called Bethsaida to rest. And while they were on their way to rest, they looked over on the shore. They were on this boat and they looked over on the shore. And this massive crowd was literally running along the shore following this boat. Okay? And I want to highlight the word massive crowd. In verse 43 of Mark, um, actually verse 44 of Mark chapter 6, it says, those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Okay, this crowd was massive. That word in Mark 6.44 is not, when it says men, 5,000 men, that is not the word for general mankind, for general people. That is a specific word that distinguishes male from female. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, it says 5,000 men besides women and children. And so most commentators estimate that there's somewhere between 15,000 and 25,000 people running along the shore after this boat following Jesus and following the twelve. This is a massive crowd. This would even be a massive crowd today. And this is a massive crowd in this time period. So the twelve, they're on their way to Bethsaida to rest. And you'll find out after this miracle in verse 45, they'll still go to Bethsaida, but Jesus 
surprises the twelve and Jesus is about to take a detour that He's planned. He wants to expose them to something. In verse 34 we see this, And when He went ashore, He saw a great crowd, and He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And He began to teach them many things. So Jesus walks up on this shore and He sees this crowd. Now at this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is finishing His ministry in Galilee. And this is really like the apex of His Galilean ministry. And most people believe that this crowd that Jesus encounters in this story is the largest crowd that He ever ministered to. This is a massive crowd. So this massive crowd is meant to be a picture, a shadow of the entire people of Israel. And I want you to notice in verse 34, how does the Savior respond to this massive crowd of needy humanity? How does He respond? Jesus is on His way to rest and His first response isn't to be annoyed. It isn't to be frustrated. Mark tells us that the Savior's first response is that He is full of compassion. He is full of compassion towards needy humanity. Now this word, it, it, it is a strong desire to help someone when you find out that they're suffering. Okay? And the Greek word really describes this deep inward emotion. So Jesus, uh, in fact, in the story of the Good Samaritan, that's a familiar story. This word compassion and the word love are basically synonymous. And so Mark's telling you that Jesus Christ is full, slam full of love for needy humanity. This is your Savior. He is filled with compassion. He is filled with love. In His guts, deep in this man's bones, He is filled with love for people. So Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? And what this means is that He's no different. Jesus still looks on needy humanity full of compassion and full of love. And let's just take that a step further. This is true for you. That Jesus, here, let this be a reminder from, to you from the Word of God that Jesus Christ loves you. He's not annoyed by you. He's not frustrated by you. He's full of compassion. This is Christ Jesus. He's full of love for sinners. I love that about Jesus. So why is Jesus full of compassion in verse 34? We read, They, the crowds, they are like sheep without a shepherd. Now, contrary to popular opinion, Jesus is not calling out this crowd, calling out Israel for a lack of pastors. Now that's a huge problem, that they don't have teachers and leaders in this culture like they should. But listen to this, He's not, he's not saying that. Jesus did not say that they are like sheep without shepherds, plural. He said that they're like sheep without a shepherd, singular. This is a very important detail in this gospel. This is awesome. I just want you to hang with me for a second. This is awesome. This sheep without a shepherd language is used twice in the Old Testament. I'll give you the references. 1 Kings 22, 17 and 2 Chronicles 18, 16. Twice it refers to Israel going to battle without a king and getting slaughtered on a mountain. They are like sheep without a shepherd scattered on a mountain. And so what Jesus is saying here, He is filled with compassion because Israel has no king, no leader. He's filled with compassion. Now look at the context. If you were to read Mark chapter 6 for yourself, you would find that this story immediately follows a story about a guy named Herod. Okay? And the guy named Herod, he is the Jewish king. But the problem is, is that he's a Roman puppet and he hates God. This man just killed, he just murdered John the Baptist. 
four or five verses before this story. He just murdered John the Baptist. So Jesus looks at this massive crowd of the people of Israel and he says, Herod is no shepherd of the sheep. He's a false king. So listen to this. The sheep without a shepherd language is rooted further in the Old Testament. Here's another example. God tells Moses, Moses was a leader of the people in the Old Testament, right? God tells Moses that he's going to die. And Scripture records Moses' prayer immediately after God says, you're going to die. I want to read that to you. Numbers 27, 16, and 17, Moses says this. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Do you see what happened in that verse? Moses saw himself as the shepherd leader in Israel, and then he prays to God and asks God for a replacement. This is the language of a king. This is the language of a leader. Let me give you some more Old Testament. This is Ezekiel 34. This is a rich Old Testament prophecy about Christ. Ezekiel 34.15 says this, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. A few verses later, verse 23 and 24. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. In that passage, God just told you that a shepherd was coming and a prince was coming in the same person. And so this Old Testament prophecy announces a coming shepherd king. Who do you think that is? Okay, so this is a this is an awesome prophecy in the Old Testament. So Jesus says, back in Mark chapter six, Jesus says that Israel has no shepherd, no king, no leader, and then full of compassion. I mean, slam full of love and compassion for this crowd. Jesus steps forward as the fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy, and he steps forward as the true shepherd of Israel. Israel may have been without a shepherd. But they're without a shepherd no longer. Jesus is the shepherd and He will lead and He will feed His sheep. Listen to this rich New Testament language about Christ. This is the Christ that you love. The New Testament announces Jesus as the good shepherd. John 10. New Testament announces Jesus as the chief shepherd. 1 Peter 5. And then the New Testament announces Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep. Hebrews chapter 13. So the, the sheep in Israel lack the leader, but Jesus steps forward full of compassion and He will lead this people. Jesus is the true shepherd of Israel. And then, in the following verses, Jesus demonstrates that He is the true shepherd. I want to call attention to the first thing that Jesus does. The first thing that Jesus does as the shepherd of the sheep, in verse 34, the first thing He does is He addresses spiritual needs. Why? Because these are the deepest needs of humanity. These are the most urgent needs of humanity. In an act of love, in an act of compassion, verse 34 says, He taught them many things. This is what the shepherd does. He provides spiritual food for His people. He taught them many things. He demonstrates with these words His deep concern for the souls of men and women. Verse 35 and 36. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, 
And the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So Jesus taught this crowd many things for many hours. And then it started to get late. And there's fifteen to 25,000 people there. And so people started to get hungry. And one pastor said this. I thought this was hilarious. One pastor said, every crowd has a captain obvious. Okay? And so somebody observed the obvious that day that there are a bunch of people getting hungry. And somebody goes to Jesus. We don't know who it was. And they said, hey, how about we cut this thing short and how about you let everybody go so they can go buy something to eat? But Jesus has a different idea. Listen to verse 37. Jesus answered them and He says, you give them something to eat. Think about this. First of all, these words show that Jesus is full of compassion to meet the, spirit, the physical needs of His sheep. But think about the twelve. He just told them spontaneously to feed fifteen to 25,000 people. This is an impossible commandment. Do you see that? On the spot, no planning, turn around and feed twenty-five, up to 25,000 people. And so what we see, th- th- think about this, think about this or what you know about Jesus, even so far in Mark of what you know about Jesus. Jesus Christ could have dropped a truckload of bread in the middle of that desert with a word from His mouth. He's Creator. That means He flung the whole universe out by His word, by His divine command. Okay, So Jesus could have opened His mouth and just a mega truck could have dropped a bread bomb in the middle of this desert. But he looks at the 12 and he says, you give them something to eat. And we're about to lean into a beautiful truth about Christ that he desires to demonstrate his power. But look at that verse. He desires to demonstrate his power through the 12. Through the 12. But the 12 didn't catch on so fast. Verse 37 continues, says this, And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? So Jesus gives them this impossible command and their minds are immediately in the natural realm. Immediately in the natural realm. And what do they do? They do a cost analysis. And they say, well, uh, it's going to cost about 200 denarii worth of bread to feed this crowd. And that would have been about nine months wages for a laborer in this culture. Okay? And these men did not have that money. Earlier in Mark chapter 6, remember this. Jesus sends them out. They don't even have a wallet. He says, don't take any money bags with you. They have no supplies, no resources. And so here again, this is impossible. And so they come to Jesus with this sarcastic question. Shall we buy uh, 200 denarii worth of bread? And they still don't get it. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. So Jesus has taken them further and further into the impossibility of what He's calling them to do. And so they did a cost, inventory, cost assessment, and now they, do a, they inventory their resources. And they pull them up, and He said, bring me everything you got. How many do you have? And these loaves, and five loaves and two fish were next to nothing to this crowd of multiple thousands of people. You might as well have had nothing, right? And so Jesus is showing them the impossibility of what's about to go down. The impossibility of this commandment in human resources. Now, John's Gospel tells us that the, that five loaves and two fish, it came from this small little boy. Okay, that this You remember, this crowd was spontaneous on that day. And they just, out of nowhere, they saw Jesus and the twelve, and they start running down the shore. Nobody packed 
you know, lunches. Nobody was planning to be there this long except this one really diligent mom in Israel. And she made sure this little kid had a little sack lunch to go see Jesus this day. He's the only one there that's mentioned with food. Okay? And he's got five loaves and two fish. And just in case you're thinking, what kind of mom sends a little kid out with five loaves of bread to eat for lunch? You know, you got this picture of this little kid carrying five loaves of bread, running several miles to be with Jesus. This is different than our loaves of bread. These are like small crackers, small biscuits. Okay? And the two fish are pickled fish. They're like modern-day sardines. And so this is a very simple lunch for a small kid in this culture. And this is all that they have to meet this need. Five loaves and two fish. So Jesus intended to put them in this situation of human impossibility. He intended them to do this. Because He desired to demonstrate His power. But remember, He desires to demonstrate His power through the twelve. This is an awesome truth from this passage. Jesus could have said, when they brought that five loaves and the two fish, and he could have laughed and said, that is ridiculous. And he could have said, step aside, boys, I'm about to drop the bread bomb in the middle of the wilderness. But he didn't. He did not say that. Why? Because he desired to use, even though they had a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of resources, he desired to use what they had. And I hope somebody just got a glimpse, a beautiful glimpse of Jesus Christ. Okay? This is how He rolls. He desires to use His people. He doesn't need His people. Listen to that. He does not need resources. He's the Creator. But He, in unbelievable mercy, and unthinkable love, He desires to use us. This is awesome and this is beautiful. This is grace and mercy from Jesus. Verse 39 and 40 says this, Then He commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Uh, I think what's going on here, just move through this quick. I think this is preparatory organization for what Jesus is about to do. This crowd is out of order. They lack a little order. Jesus wants everybody to sit down because Jesus wants everybody to see what's about to happen. He doesn't want there to be any distractions. He didn't desire chaotic confusion. Verse 41, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. So Jesus takes this five loaves and two fish, from this little boy, and most believe that he said a common Jewish prayer uh, that they would have said during meals in this culture. Here's, here's what it says. Jesus could have said something like this. Praise be to you, O Lord, our God, King of the world, who makes bread to come forth from the earth and who provides for all that he has created. And then the common thing would be that the crowd would respond to Jesus' prayer with a resounding Amen. Amen. Imagine you're sitting in this crowd, okay? Jesus tells you to sit down in hundreds and in fifties, and you're sitting there. And it takes a little while to get several thousand people to sit down, and you're saying, what's, what's about to go down? And then Jesus takes five loaves and two fish in His hand, and He blesses God. And you're sitting there confused. You're thinking, did He just praise God for His lunch? Is He about to eat it in front of all of us? Is He thanking God for His lunch that He just took from that little boy? So there could be some confusion. Verse 41 continues. It says that Jesus broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set them before the people. And He divided the fish among them all. This is awesome. This is a miracle that displays the Creator power of Jesus Christ. 
He multiplies. He has His power on display. And the Word of God teaches us here that the bread multiplied in the hands of Christ and the food that day, it just kept coming over and over and over again. He multiplies this bread. When verse 41 says that He gave to the twelve, I want you to see this. This is another imperfect tense verb that literally means He kept giving to the twelve. Over and over and over again, this bread multiplied in the hands of Christ and He passed it out to the twelve. And the twelve served as waiters in this banquet. Okay? This is a beautiful picture of the followers of Christ. They served as waiters in this banquet. And they were closely involved in this miracle. So try to picture the twelve passing out bread that day to thousands. Okay? They have a little basket in their hand. And Jesus is filling their basket and they're taking the bread out to the people. And I'll, I'll give you a little math guess to help you put some meat around this passage. If we just guess that each of those baskets that they had could feed 50 people, okay? What I want you to see is that this miracle took a long time. It took a little time. So 50 people, 15 to 25,000, they at, meet at least each. Each of the twelve at least would have made 25 trips back and forth from the crowd to Christ. And the Word of God says that He kept. He kept filling up their basket. Every time that they came back, He filled it up and that the bread was multiplied in the hands of Christ. So this would have taken at least 30 minutes to an hour that the bread and the fish and the food just kept coming over and over and over again until the food made its way to every single person there. Every single person there. So imagine the effect of this, of this miracle on the mind of the twelve. You have your basket and you're standing right, right in front of it and He prays. And you see five loaves and two fish in the hands of Jesus. And then He says, bring me your basket. And then all of a sudden He fills it up. Right in front of you. He fills it up right in front of you. And then you turn maybe to one of your buddies, another one of the twelve. You say, you see what He just did? He's filled my basket up. And he says, yeah, I know, man, me too. He just filled my basket up. And then it doesn't stop there. They go past that one out and they're thinking like, you know, he wants me to come back and he fills it up again and he fills it up again and he fills it up again. Can you see him calling out? Ten times, he did it ten times, he just filled my basket up. Can you see this? And can you imagine one of them calling out? He's about to feed them all, dude. He is about to feed every single person here from five loaves and two fish, this miracle would have marked their minds. And they played a part in this miracle. Jesus met the needs of humanity, but He did it through the twelve. He multiplied the bread, but they delivered it to the people. Can you imagine how good this food was? The Creator of the ends of the earth just served a banquet in the wilderness. Okay, This is food that's never been touched by the effects of sin. Perfect fish, perfect bread. And so this is no exaggeration that this food was good. This food was good. In fact, the next verse says that every single person there stuffed themselves. Listen to verse 42. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and a fish. So everyone ate to the full and then they picked up scraps. Okay? And that might sound like a weird detail to you. And don't get cross-threaded on this passage this doesn't mean that Jesus is a you know a, a tree-hugging, Greenpeace hippie that wants to pick up all the trash. That's not the point of, his, of this verse. This verse gives us a very interesting detail. What does it say? 
it says that there were 12 baskets full when they got done picking up the scraps. So the 12 baskets are for the 12 apostles. Notice the precision of this. This is not an accident. Notice the precision. Notice the, notice the exactactness of what happened. So imagine them. That, and, and, and this was already amazing enough of what they were involved in. And then everybody goes home and then the 12 are there and they're gathering up the scraps. And can you imagine the moment when it clicked in their minds? There are 12 baskets exactly of leftovers. And the lesson to the 12 is this. The lesson to the 12, and it would have been like a seared into their soul. Bring what you have to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ multiplies what you have and He meets the needs of massive amounts of humanity. And when it's all said and done, there's still leftovers. The need was met and the supply of Jesus Christ was completely undiminished. He is infinite, infinitely powerful. This is Jesus. Twelve baskets of leftovers. And this miracle for the twelve, it would have been a foretaste of what Jesus would do through these men. Just remember what He sends them off with at the end of the Gospels. Go make disciples of all the nations. This is just a foretaste of that, of how He used these men. I want to finish up with just some application of this text. Where does this text intersect our lives? How can we understand what God is saying to us from this text? And this story has multiple layers. It has multiple layers. And I want to try to unpack that for us. This miracle is for us because it provides a picture of the Christian life to us. Here's what I mean. Jesus commands you to do more than you can do. He commands us to do more than can be done. Just like He looks to the twelve and He says, you give them something to eat. He looks to His church and He says, make disciples of all nations. He commands us to do more than can be done. Here's the problem. We are inadequate. All we have is weakness to bring to Christ. God intends that you feel inadequate. As a follower of Christ, He intends this. This is an expression of humility for you because it's true. You are inadequate. Okay? And inadequacy and humility are necessary conditions for Christian fruitfulness because it's the Spirit's work. These are necessary conditions for the Spirit's work in our lives. So here's the reality for us. A lot of people in this room. I want to talk to the most gifted Christian in this room right now. The most gifted Christian in this room is unbelievably insufficient to meet the needs of this world. Unbelievably insufficient in and of yourselves. The most gifted Christian in this room. And this should humble you. The most gifted Christian in this room right now is no different than a little boy with a sack lunch trying to feed 20,000 people. You're no different than him. You're unbelievably insufficient and unbelievably weak. Let John 15.5 be a humble reminder to you. Jesus says this, Apart from Me, you can do nothing. That's how self-confident Jesus wants you to be. Apart from Me, you can do nothing. But here's the other truth. We are completely inadequate and all we have to bring to the Lord is weakness. But Jesus Christ desires to use us. Praise His holy name. Jesus desires to use His people. Jesus desires to use weak vessels. He desires to use us. This is unbelievable mercy from Jesus. He could accomplish every one of His purposes in creation and redemption apart from His people. But He uses us. The rocks could cry out His holy name, but He uses us. So we often think, 
We often think that God can only use us when we feel well-equipped and adequate and strong. But what I'm sharing with you from this text is that God desires that you come to Him in weakness. He wants to use you in weakness and inadequacy because He wants to get all the glory out of your life. No human boasting in His presence. So the point is this. Jesus multiplies the bread. And this means for us that a little can become a lot with Jesus. So I want to encourage someone in this room. Is there anybody in this room who feels unbelievably ordinary? You do not feel like a super Christian. In fact, you look around you and you see people 20, 30 times in your mind more gifted than you, further along than you. And you feel ordinary. I want to encourage you from this story. Unbelievably ordinary. Let this be a sweet reminder to you that He can feed thousands through you. Thousands of people He can feed through a little boy's sack lunch. So here's my encouragement. Will you bring what you have to Jesus Christ and will you trust Him to multiply it? This is the takeaway for us. Will you bring what you have to Jesus and will you multiply it? So this story is an application to us and it's powerful, but it is not. It is not the main point. The main thrust of this miracle reveals Jesus Christ in all His glory. And so Jesus is the true shepherd of Israel and He feeds His sheep. That is the main point of this text. You're not the main point of this text. Jesus is. In this story, Jesus reveals Himself as the second Moses. Say what? Listen to this. Jesus reveals Himself as the second Moses. Jesus is like Moses, but greater than Moses. Jesus is the true and greater Moses. Moses was the shepherd of Israel for one generation. Jesus steps forward as the shepherd of the sheep forever. Moses was used by God, and God rained manna down in the desert for His people in the wilderness. But Jesus Himself provides desert. He provides a banquet for His people in the middle of the desert. He's the true and better Moses. Now, that Moses analogy, that might sound really good, but how do you know that's even right? How do you know that that's not textual gymnastics, okay? And making the Word of God say something that it doesn't. How do you know? Because this is exactly how the crowds received and responded to this miracle. Exactly. That was the exact thought in their mind. He's the better Moses. He's the greater Moses. Let me show you this. In John chapter 6, verse 14, immediately after Jesus multiplies this bread, in John 6, 14, we read, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. That's what they said after He did what He did. Now what does that mean? This is a fulfillment of a prophecy of Moses in Deuteronomy 18.5. This is a famous prophecy about Christ in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 18.5 says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. That was Moses talking. And they said, that's the one. Jesus is the one. He's the one that's arisen like Moses. That's what they said. And you know what it says in the next, very next verse of John? That crowd that just called him the true and better Moses, the prophet like Moses. Do you know what it says? They tried to grab hold of Jesus and the Word of God says, and make him king. He reveals himself as the true shepherd king of Israel and they try to lay hold of him and make him king in that moment. Jesus is revealing Himself to us. He is revealing Himself as the true shepherd king of Israel and the true shepherd king of humanity. You see how rich this story is. It displays the glory of Jesus. And it's got many layers of beauty that display the glory of Christ.
And we need to worship Him. We need to worship Jesus for how He's revealed in this text. But let's not give the crowd too much credit. They were right that Jesus was the coming prophet and the king, but they were wrong in another sense. Because later in John 6, verse 26, Jesus says this to the crowd. He said, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So do you see what Jesus is saying? He said, you're following me. You didn't get the sign. You just ate the bread. Okay? And so they understood him in some ways, but ultimately they distorted the message. Jesus tells the crowd that they missed the point of the sign. Okay? He is like Moses, but not exactly. And he is the coming king in the line of David, but not exactly. They thought that Jesus came to give physical bread, but Jesus ultimately comes to give himself as bread. They thought that Jesus, they were going to make him king because they thought that he had come to conquer the Romans, but Jesus Christ had come to conquer sin. They were blinded to his purpose. He was the true and better Moses. He was the true and better David. He was Israel's true king. But they didn't understand that his kingdom was not of this world. So they misunderstood this. And this, How can you receive Jesus as your king? John 6 says, by receiving him as your bread. And this entire story is about bread. You receive Jesus as your king by receiving him as your bread. This miracle looks forward. We just looked at how it looks backward, but it also looks forward. Jesus feeds thousands with physical food. And this shows Jesus' willingness to give true bread to needy humanity. And you see this, and in this way it looks forward. He is the true bread. He is the ultimate nourishment, the ultimate satisfaction. So, here's the question. If Jesus has come to be true bread, how do you receive this bread? And how does He give this bread? If He is the bread of life, how do you eat it? If He is the bread of life, how do you receive it? Great question. Fantastic question. And Jesus answers this question. In John chapter 6, verses 48 through 51, He says this, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the bread that I will give to the life of the world is my flesh. One more time so it's crystal clear. Jesus said, And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Flesh. This is true bread. How do you receive it? How do you receive it? This feeding of the multitudes points towards the ultimate feeding where Jesus Christ feeds His people true bread. On the cross, Jesus gives His flesh as bread for the entire world. Eat this bread, live forever. Reject this bread and perish forever. This is the message of Jesus. The only way to eat this bread, Jesus is the true bread, and the only way to eat this bread is to trust in Jesus Christ. This is the metaphor of faith that you put all of your trust in Jesus, that you receive Jesus Christ by faith, that you believe in Him, and He becomes the bread of life to you. And He gives this bread on the cross. The Son of God was crucified for you. The shepherd has given His life 
for His sheep. This is unbelievable grace. This bread of life is for every single person who will repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. I want to leave you with the last verse. Notice that this story, when Jesus, when He takes this five loaves and two fish, it says that He took it, that He blessed it, that He broke it, and then He gave it. Okay, you see those four things? Last verse. Notice the parallels of the words of Jesus Christ the night before that He was crucified. In Luke 22, Ryan's already read it once. Luke 22, 19. And He took the bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them, and He said, This is My body which is given for you. This is the good news of Jesus Christ for sinners to every person who will trust Him. He is the bread of life. Let's pray. Father, we pray in Your name, Lord, that You would drive, we ask You, Lord, that by Your Holy Spirit, that You would drive these beautiful descriptions of Jesus into our soul, Lord. We pray, God, that You wouldn't let them fall to the ground. Lord, bring, bring this church tremendous comfort that we have a great shepherd of the sheep. We have You, Lord. You have revealed Yourself in love and mercy. God, we pray that You would drive away fear and anxiety from our hearts because we have a good shepherd. Jesus, You're a good shepherd. Drive these truths in by the Holy Spirit. Make this Word effective in our lives, Lord. We pray, God, that You would encourage us, that You desire to use us, Lord. Fill us with confidence. Fill us with faith in You, Lord, that a little can become much in Your hands. God, and we pray that You would use this church, even like Gideon's army. God, we pray that You would use us to route thousands for Your name. God, we pray that You would make us a little small church with an all-nations impact. Lord, we pray that You would do this supernatural work among us. God, we pray that You would come in Your Holy Spirit, Lord, that You would flood our minds with the work of the Spirit and that You would glorify the real Jesus among us, Lord. We pray that You would glorify the real Jesus in our midst. Make us long for the real Jesus like bread for our souls. Make us, make us hunger, Lord, to know You more and more and more. Come stand by Your Word. Come be the bread of life to Your people. We pray this in Your name. Amen.